Hello, and welcome to this edition of the ETA Insider Podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm Brian O'Connor, Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth, and joining me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my colleague and friend, Lisa Forrest. Lisa is the co-director of Sponsor Finance and Search Fund Lending at Live Oak Bank. She's a 30-plus year banking professional with deep experience in the world of ETA lending. She's widely regarded as one of the industry's go-to resources nationally for her expertise in M&A deal structuring. Lisa, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. Lisa, let's get started with a little bit of your background. How did you find your way into this niche that we now call home? Yeah. So, and for just kind of level setting in my role at Live Oak Bank, we provide senior debt for traditionally funded accelerator models for conventional lending. And then we're also doing self-funded financing for our self-funded searchers using the SBA program. So I'm doing both ends of the spectrum. The way I got into the ETA world here is via the SBA world. So this is my 37th, Three, seven year of doing this and really got into the ecosystem via the SBA world with the explosion of the self-funded model. We kind of happened onto it, if you will. I'm based in Seattle. We're doing deals nationwide. But in my own backyard in Seattle, I started getting introduced to folks wanting to use SBA for their acquisitions. And they had these pedigrees, Chicago, HBS, Carnegie Mellon, just all of the sort of business school pedigrees, and they wanted to use an SBA loan. And they may or may not have had their own personal financial statement. They may not, may or may not have had their own kind of bucket or money for acquisition, the acquisition. And I really got immersed starting with the SBA side. And when I realized what we had here, I searched for a lender that would allow us to go very, very deep in the space. We started on the SBA side, made sure we were really ingrained and respectful and appreciative of the ecosystem. And then we you know, started to broaden our horizons with conventional lending for both our accelerators, um, like a next gen or our traditionally funded searchers. So the long answer to your question is we kind of happened upon it. Very and we cool. realized that these great um, next generation of entrepreneurs, these younger, enthusiastic um, acquirers were coming out of our business schools um, through the ETA experience. And we were both, yes, please. We want to do more of that on a 24-7 basis. And we morphed our SBA practice into 100% ETA ecosystem. Well, all of us on the equity investment side are glad you found your way into the ecosystem. You all are a, a wonderful part of our community, as well as the operators. I know, Lisa, there are many operators out there that are, are thrilled to have you all as partners. Let's talk for the listeners. We don't spend a ton of time, not enough time on this podcast talking about the SBA. And specifically, when you talk about the SBA, I'll assume that you're referring to the SBA 7A program. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about that, Lisa, for maybe the listeners out there that aren't as familiar. What are the, maybe some of the questions to get us started might be like, you know, typical deal size and level of leverage and what that leverage looks like and some of the terms and conditions and covenants associated with that paper. Let's get into that a little bit. I just, just so the listeners better understand that program. 
Yeah. And, you know, obviously comparing and contrasting between the traditionally funded and accelerator models, the self-funded path for purposes of our conversation, let's assume that they're going to be using an SBA 7A loan, although you can be a self-funded searcher and then, you know, pick up more of a traditional investor base and go can get conventional. But for purposes of what we're trying to do here with your audience, let's assume everyone's going to be using the SBA 7A program. And the SBA program is 180 degree different from how a conventional transaction is going to set up and how it's going to look. SBA 7A is designed to be a highly leveraged transaction, whereas for our traditionally funded and accelerator models using a conventional, there's a boatload, a heap load more equity into that structure by design. And with SBA, you can have equity investors in your cap table on an SBA transaction. It's just that it's also designed to be highly leveraged, a little mini leveraged buyouts, if you will. So I would say the average sort of EBITDA is probably in sort of that million and a half, maybe two million of EBITDA and below. And I say that because at Live Oak, and again, not being a commercial for Live Oak, but in particular, there are some lenders that that can partner up a conventional junior piece behind the maximum $5 million SBA 7A loan. So with a 7A loan, you're maximized at a $5 million loan, not project cost, but loan. So the reason I'm saying we could potentially get up to a million and a half to two million of EBITDA is because some lenders can actually put a junior conventional piece behind the maximum 7A. So most of our searchers on the self-funded side are, are probably in that million and a half and below. And it's meant to be highly leveraged. So the SBA's minimum is a minimum of 10% equity. And I know there's some people's heads are exploding right now when I say it's designed to have sort of 10% equity. And that can be a combination of the acquirer. Maybe you've got a later stage searcher that has you know been out in the business world, maybe doing a private equity or investment banking. They might be then coming into a late stage MBA And then they might be searching sort of in their 40s or maybe even 50s. Those folks are going to have a little bit more personal financial statement. So those folks might be acquiring with their own dollars. But SBA does allow investor equity to make up that 10%. And that's minimum. So, you know, there are transactions that require more equity to make the debt service work. But And Lisa, real quick on that, let's just double click on that. Are there any requirements or nuances associated with the terms and conditions of that equity? Does it need to come from a, you know, no more than a certain number of individuals or institutions? How much, if any, needs to come from the, you know, the principal or the, you know, in the case of an ETA transaction, the operator that will find themselves in the, at the helm of this business post-transaction. What are, the, what are the rules and regs around that? Yeah. And this is where, this is a great segue because this is personal guarantee is the part that stops this being an interesting vehicle for our traditionally funded our accelerators, because anyone who owns 20% or more of the economic benefit has to personally guarantee. And if you notice, I made a distinction by saying economic benefit. So this is going to drill down to each individual owner. So if you've got investors that own less than 20%, they do not have to provide a personal guarantee. So our operator acquirer that's going to own the vast majority of the ownership, they'll be providing the personal guarantee. So you're allowed to have preferred returns for your minority investors. It's just that 
we're going to extrapolate the returns on those preferred tranche over a 10-year period because that's the amount of amortization on an SBA loan. So we're going to assume a certain amount of return on that preferred. And generally, if there's common and preferred, your common has to sort of be below 13, maybe 15% maximum on the common if you've got preferred. Just as a little pitch, I have an equity worksheet that we have template for our searchers that are bringing investors, minority investors in so that they can work through the math to make sure that everything is gelling and is 100% in the spirit and the intent and the rules and regulations of SBA. On, on and so said differently, correct me on this, but if I'm to summarize that on a fully diluted basis over a 10-year period, that would be how a searcher might think about that 20% threshold. Absolutely. Okay. Just yeah. wanted and to... We've got just... a, yeah. And we've got a worksheet. We've got a template that we have for our self-funded searchers so they can work through that math as they're going along to make sure that everything is, is going to work out well. Okay. So can we talk about this notion of a personal guarantee, how that guarantee works? Is there other collateral required certain covenants? You mentioned it's a 10-year amortization schedule. Maybe walk us through how that amortization schedule actually sort of works in practice. And then some of the details on that, I know our listeners are interested and understandably so about this notion of a a PG and collateral. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So how the personal guarantee works, anyone who owns 20% or more that economic benefit, they sign an unlimited personal guarantee, an unlimited personal guarantee. And if you have, say, two partners doing this, you're each guaranteeing the total amount of the loan. It's not like if you have 50-50 partners, you're signing a PG for half of the debt. Nope, you get the whole nut, each of you, if you've got multiple people on the, the loan together. And it is going to be secured by any real estate that you have. So we're not actually taking liens on stocks and bonds. 401ks are excluded. But any hard real estate, we're going to actually take secondary or tertiary liens on primary residence, rental properties, the like. And SBA's rule, I mean, this is meant to be a collateral agnostic program. The reason the SBA is guaranteeing a portion of the bank's loan is that it's to compel lenders to make cash flow loans. However, if you do have collateral, Even if it's not fully securing the loan, the SBA is going to make us take a lien on that. So let's just say you're doing a million dollar loan and you've got $200,000 of home equity. We'll take a secondary lien on your property behind your primary lender. We're still well under collateralized and that's what the SBA is there to do. Understood. And will that borrower vis-a-vis, say, maybe the borrower that doesn't have that level of equity in a home or or another hard asset, will that benefit that borrower in the terms and conditions, pricing, the other considerations on that piece of paper? You know, not really. There are some SBA lenders that are really enamored with the idea of collateral, but we're doing business acquisition here. We're doing management and ownership transitions. So most lenders, if, if they're really doing this well, they're really basing their decisions on the cash flow, debt service coverage. And that's how we are. I mean, we're immersed in this ETA business acquisition space. And maybe if there is some amount of collateral that we're taking, great. 
I'm not saying we don't like it. Of course, if we could have some amount that's actually collateralizing the, the cash flow loan with some hard assets, sure, we'll take it. But the basis of our decision is really around the debt service coverage, the cash flow, the transition plan, all the qualitative aspects of making a really good acquisition decision. Yep. So we're going to get into that uh, in just a second here. Is there any sort of off-limits business models? I want to segue into the quality of the asset in the industry in which that asset operates. Anything that's off-limits, anything that tends to be out of favor as it relates to the appetite of you all as lenders in this program? So SBA's got a few things that you can't do. Outside of that, it's really a lender-to-lender credit policy, credit decision. How does that lender think about these certain things? So with SBA, you can't have gambling. You can't have sexually purient. You can't do things like casinos and things like that. But other than that, the SBA is really putting the decision-making in the hands of the lenders. And so I'll just give an example. For example, at Live Oak, we are looking for non-cyclical industries. So businesses that, that have a heavy tie to ground up new construction, whether it's residential or, or commercial, because they can have such cyclical ebbs and flows. There's a lot of construction related companies on the market right now, and they seem to have been doing very well over the last 10 years. We just don't want to have to t- make the bet correctly on when that might ebb or flow. So for us, ties to that industry is just not a good fit for us. But other SBA lenders might be perfectly okay with that. Sure. And Lisa, do those underwriting philosophies, I'll call them, apply to both the lending that you do through the SBA program and more broadly at Live Oak Bank? Those feel like you know, some principles that might hold true in any underwriting environment. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. We have a credit philosophy. We have a credit sensibility that is going to play across, you know, credit products, whether you're talking SBA or conventional for sure. So ties to new construction, cyclical ties to oil and gas, where we just don't know that industry very well. Industries where you have to sort of make the bet correctly on what side of the cycle you're on. Those are the ones where we're going to sort of take a little pause on that. But other than that, we're very industry agnostic and we're doing a lot of industries. Yeah. And I'd like to double click on some of those industries. Maybe you can give us some examples in this environment of what's getting funded and maybe what's having a harder time getting funded. It's a unique time in the world of credit. Uh, So I'd like to kind of get to that in a second. But you've mentioned this a couple of times. You've mentioned the words or phrase high leverage. And when I think about high leverage, I think about risk, you know. So, and then you've now said you tend to avoid some of these industries that might have some cyclicality about them, which of course makes a tremendous amount of sense in a high leverage environment because your margin for error becomes ever smaller as the level of leverage increases and as the level of EBITDA goes down. I mean, we're sort of talking about pretty small businesses here without a ton of margin for error as it relates to free cash flow and the ability to service debt. How do you all think about risk in the context of these highly leveraged mini LBOs, as you sort of earlier in the episode described them? Yeah, part of it is just having done this for so many years and being with a lender that's really good at cash flow lending, we put our 
clients through a pretty rigorous underwriting process. For SBA, it's going to feel and look very similar to how our traditionally funded and conventional underwriting process looks, because you've got to get that cash flow right. And we have a certain debt service coverage threshold. And for us, it's a 1.5 debt service coverage, which is cash flow over total annual debt payments. There's a lot of SBA lenders that actually have a, a lesser debt service coverage requirement. So we're actually a little bit more conservative in the way that we approach our SBA lending. Again, it's lender to lender. And I don't know if this is a good time to talk about some of that qualitative aspect, but you know, we require pretty detailed transition plans. We have a kind of a 10-page M&A questionnaire. We have a qualitative matrix. We have a lot of templates and tools that we provide our self-funded searchers so that they can really make sure that that cash flow that they're acquiring, because this is so important, they've got to be able to transition it. And then much like our conventional acquirers, traditional and accelerator, our self-funded searchers coming out of the ETA world are looking to grow their companies also. So you've really, with lesser free cash flow, the way that the program is designed, you've really got to make sure you nail that cash flow analysis right from the get-go. And there's a lot of feel to this, for lack of a more um, cut and dry way of, of saying it. Yeah. You know, the word that comes to my mind as you're describing this is durability, right? Durability about the cash flows and your ability to underwrite them over long periods of time. And, and that tends to lend itself to some of these business models that are in favor in the world of ETA that generate highly recurring streams of revenue with low levels of churn. Are those favorite attributes of Lisa and Live Oak as well? I would suspect at these leverage levels and the nature of the paper that you're putting on these businesses? Absolutely. And the other word I use a lot is repeatability because these are lower EBITDA companies. It's, it's not like we would love to fit a SaaS model in that has really recurring revenue, but you, you just can't afford to put that into an SBA kind of structure. But we look at repeatability and especially, you know, coming post COVID and it's more confusing now than ever, really. You've got the post COVID tailwinds, catch up, supply chain, and we're really trying to get at, is this revenue? Is this EBITDA? Is it repeatable? Because we don't necessarily get as much of the recurring, contracted recurring, like you might in a, you know, a seven or an $8 million EBITDA company. You might not get that in a $1 million EBITDA company, but there's ways to think about repeatability. Yes. Yes. That's a great point. So let's talk about kind of the current environment a little bit, if we could. It's an interesting environment. What are you seeing in terms of current deal flow trends? Maybe we could talk about volume a little bit. You see a lot of activity. You've got a lot of good data. Let's talk about volume, velocity of deal making, leverage levels, if that's changing at all. Maybe it's relatively constant when you think about the SBA 7A program, but maybe outside of the SBA 7A program, what are you seeing in, in terms of deal flow and how these things are getting financed and, and some of the factors like cost and amortization schedules and leverage levels in the large number of deals that come through Live Oak's purview every year? Yeah, and I've got a couple, uh, I'll do a little stream of consciousness with you here. So direct me or cut me off or direct me, point me in a different direction. So with SBA, given that it is meant to be highly leveraged, I mean, it's 10% equity, 
and then generally a 10 or a 15% seller note. And we're doing 75 to 80% financing. So that's including the seller note, that's 90% financing. So the doubling of interest rates have, at least in this lower middle market SBA world, the doubling of interest rates, it has had the intended effect. The doable deal velocity has definitely curtailed. One of our value propositions is that we will help our self-funded searchers look at deals pre-LOI, help them. We have a whole template process around helping them look at projects prior to the LOI being submitted. And we're still seeing, you know, X number of deals a day, but the ability to actually put debt on those opportunities in a, in a smart, realistic way has just, it's definitely curtailed. So compared to maybe in the traditionally funded or accelerator worlds where your level of debt is already a lot less by design also. So your impact on interest rates in a conventional transaction when you might be doing maybe 40%, maybe 50%, 40 to 50% debt, your deal flow is impacted a little less, maybe a lot less than if you're trying to put 90% leverage on something and now your interest rates just double. So my long answer made short is yes, deal flow has slowed. I'm hoping once sellers sort of get the you know, really understand that their buyers, if they are SBA buyers, their affordability has absolutely changed. I know seller, you had the best year ever in 2022, but your company is now worth less now, not worthless, but worth less because of the amount of the debt. And there's got to be some meeting of the minds here. And these are not deals that have just gone away and never coming back. No, no, no. There's just sure. a bit of a delay. Sure. And maybe, you know, Lisa, because you did mention that there's a lot of opportunities coming through the pipeline. It's just that fewer are closing. Would your advice then be to the searchers that are listening to this podcast that are out there that might be self-funded, that are interested in doing a, an SBA loan on their asset? Does the bar then need to change from an underwriting standpoint in order to get financed. You know, the deals that maybe 18, 24 months ago when, you know, the credit market was white hot, has that changed? And does that mean that the bar is just that much higher or there's more scrutiny around the valuation? Help us, you know, sort of deliver to our listeners some takeaways and advice given the environment, the credit environment that we're in right now. Yeah. At the current valuation expectation of sellers in this lower middle market SBA realm, anyway, the current valuation expectations of sellers, if that stays the same, I mean, it's just math, right? So you can move your factors around. So if one of the factors is valuation and that stays the same where sellers are today, and the opportunity makes a lot of sense for all the other reasons that it's going to make sense. Debt service is now harder to get to at 10% down. So, okay, you feel that that price is justified. Maybe it's 20% equity, or maybe it is instead of a 10 or a 15% seller note at a five-year amortization, maybe it's a 20% seller note at a 10-year amortization with some more equity. So something in the math has got to give. Sure. And if the seller isn't going to adjust their price, then it definitely means more equity. Yeah. So, right. That's a great point. So just, it may not necessarily be the case that the enterprise value of the transaction needs to change to make the math work. 
on a deal like that, it's this structure, the debt and equity components. And maybe there's an additional gesture that a seller needs to make around their commitment to getting a deal done where they may understand all of this and uh, agree to take on a little bit more paper themselves in a transaction. Right. And the structure of the paper might have to be different than it has been in an industry standard, which is maybe a five-year amortization. They might have to lengthen that out to help the cause, if you will. Sure. I suspect it's a little bit of all three of those. But, you know, and again, it's not that the lower middle market SBA world isn't still brisk and vibrant. It's very necessary. It's just the structure of it. that There's just some, there's still a lot of pretty significant disconnect. And I think it's going to take another six months dare I say, maybe nine months for the new structure to accommodate. Sure, sure. Well, that forward-looking, Lisa, coming from you is very valuable. I know you're on the front lines. You're seeing as much of this deal flow as anybody. So that's really insightful. We appreciate you sharing that. We're about up on time, Lisa. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners have too. Any final thoughts or pieces of advice for those that might be thinking about going about searching for a a small business to acquire or some that maybe are already doing so? What would be some parting words of wisdom from you? Well, I have one comment. I don't know how much wisdom there is in it, but I have one comment and then I have an invitation if I can do both. I think that's great. One change that is on the horizon for SBA structures It has been approved, but there is no clarity around it at all. So one of the no-nos in the SBA world has been seller rolling equity. That has never been allowed. There's been actually a federal register change where SBA is now going to allow seller rolling of equity in transactions, so partial acquisitions. We don't know any of the details yet. We hopefully will know more of those by mid-May. And that also could be helping this whole structure discussion we've been sure. been having. So seller rolling equity is on the horizon, more to come mid-May. And then I have a weekly office hours that I hold. So anyone wanting to explore the SBA 7A path, we do a weekly office hours every Wednesday and I would invite people to join us. Listeners, please take Lisa up on that. They're fantastic. And I'm sure it'll be a great learning experience and a relationship built. Lisa, one follow-up question that I wanted to ask you about that. You know, the notion of a, a seller rolling equity to align interests in the future is a and potentially bridge valuation gaps. You know, I've seen that used as a mechanism when there's a sort of a bid-ask spread between buyer and seller to sort of have a shared vision about what the equity could be worth in the future and therefore more sale consideration at the end of the day for the seller. Why is that a concept that the SBA program was averse to historically? So you have to kind of go way back to when the SBA program was created. It's been around for a while. And I think the notion of what a business acquirer looks like is very different today than when the program started, you know, kind of back in, you know, the 50s. So I think the SBA is, and they do make really good changes over time. It just might take time to realize that this change, which we've never allowed before, is really beneficial. They never want to make changes that kind of doesn't meet the spirit and the intent of helping entrepreneurs 
get access to capital that they couldn't get elsewhere. That's the whole idea of the SBA. So I think it's just a matter of them really just kind of listening to the constituents and just kind of catching up to the idea that sellers staying on rolling equity can actually be beneficial and, you know, not a fraudulent activity where, sure. you know, they're going to get a bunch of money and they don't really exit, you know, um, sure. realizing that it could be a really good thing from a transition risk perspective. And then also very beneficial for the new entrepreneur coming on. I think it's them just really kind of catching up to the benefits of it. Understood. That's great historical context. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. Well, listen, we are upon time, but I want to thank you so much for investing your time and insights and all of these great learnings with our listeners on behalf of the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and all of our listeners out there. We sincerely thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, thanks for having me. We're big friends of yours and of the Polsky Center. So thank you. Thank you.